So God's saving purpose is with a view towards Christ reflecting the preeminence that he deserves. And when you reflect Christ, when you are shaped and molded and become more and more like Jesus, you show off Jesus and God is glorified. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have spent the past couple of weeks in chapter 8, a section of this epistle that is rich in a multitude of doctrinal truths. Most recently, we've been looking at the idea that some put forth that God has preordained some people to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Pastor Brogy has shown how in actuality God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. But he doesn't force himself upon people. Today, in a message entitled, God's Chain of Salvation, we'll see that God's foreknowledge of who will indeed make a decision for Christ is only the beginning of a wonderful life that the Father has for all who believe. Now, we're in the last 12 verses of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Three key doctrines are covered. And when you come to the final 12 verses, you can feel Paul's excitement as he reviews the whole plan of salvation from eternity past into eternity future. And he will close this section of Scripture reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 28 is probably the best-known verse in the whole chapter, and many Christians have hung on to it and applied it in many different ways. But I want you to see this morning that the thing that God is working together for our good is explained in verses 29 and 30 that we're going to study in detail. So let's begin reading in verse 28 as we think about five stages to God's chain of salvation. Verse 28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then notice how the chapter closes with a shout of victory. Look at verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a golden chain of salvation in this passage that cannot be broken. And if you were here last time, we studied in great detail the very first link And today we'll look at the other four, but let's just begin with a brief review. Now, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, is an often quoted and legitimately applied verse to times of great blessing and times of great distress. But very often it's missed in its context. Remember, he's not referring just to anyone, but he's referring to believers. And we know that God works all things together for those who love God. He's speaking of those who are born again. To those, and the King James is more literal and best here, for those who are the called. It looks like a verb in most of our English translations, but it's actually a noun. He's speaking of a particular group of people who are the called. 
And for those who are the called of God, who are believers in Jesus Christ, who love God, the Lord has a particular purpose in which he's working everything together for good. Now, the first link in this chain is what we call God's foreknowledge. There in your outline, God's foreknowledge. Let me just briefly review it because we spent an hour on it last time. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now, the verb translated foreknew or foreknowledge, what does it mean? Many people have infused into it much more than what you really find in the Word of God. The common meaning of the word to foreknow means to know in advance or to know beforehand. And we illustrated last week from the word prognosko that is translated here. It's two words in Greek brought together. The word pro, we get our English prefix, pre, meaning before. It's speaking of before knowledge. Uh, A form of the word comes directly into English, word for word, I mean letter for letter, as prognosis, as a Greek medical term that spoke of prior knowledge in terms of the course a disease might go. Now please notice this verse does not say what God foreknew, but whom God foreknew, because God's not speaking here of things or events. He's talking here about people. God has foreknowledge because he knows the beginning and the end. He knows those who will receive him and those who will reject him. Now, people say, well, if God knows it all, then that must mean I'm not free. No, that's a false conclusion. If God didn't know everything, God would not be God. One of the attributes that distinguishes God is that he is omniscient, that he knows everything. And God knowing everything in no way diminishes your free will. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Yet some of my hyper-Calvinistic friends would say you can have two women side by side, both pregnant, and one baby before he ever saw the light of day is predetermined to go to hell, and another baby is predetermined to go to heaven, and there's nothing they can do about it. And I told you last time, I believe that is a slander on the character of God, and it totally ignores the free will of God Almighty. I do not believe that God in his sovereignty arbitrarily damns the greater part of humanity to a destination over which they had absolutely no say or no control over for not having chosen a salvation they weren't even truly able to respond to. Listen, we all deserve to go to hell, and if God had done nothing and sent all of humanity to hell, it would have been fair and just. But God, who set the penalty, loved us so much, he was willing to pay the penalty through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. And so when God gives an invitation, it's a real invitation. Jesus said, come to me all, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Spirit's invitation is real in Revelation 22. It says, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. God does not invite people to something that is impossible for them to come to. I want you to understand this morning that God's sovereignty in no way squishes your free will. I believe in a sovereign God, and let me emphasize that again. But the sovereignty of God does not in any way diminish the free will of man. He knows and is before knowledge those who will respond. He knows how they will react to the gospel of his son. 
Now, somehow, many people believe that because God knows, that God determines what will happen. And of course, in Calvinistic theology, and we saw there's much more to Calvinism than just the doctrine of salvation, but in the realm of salvation, in Calvinistic theology, foreknowledge is not a divine attribute, it is a divine act. It's a determination that God makes, a choice that God makes. And so they would say God chooses some to go to heaven and God chooses some to go to hell. And if God hadn't chosen any, it would have been fair and just as they reason it. But since the word means to know beforehand, commentators, ancient and modern alike, have not taught that. In Calvinism, while it has grown quite a bit in the last 20 years, and it's had its ups and downs in the history of the American church, it is very much a minority view across the world. Most places in the world, when you go and you meet believers, whether it's India or China or Africa or the Middle East or Eastern Europe, they have absolutely no idea what you are talking about. They read the same book, the same Bible, and they have no idea what this idea is that God chooses some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. You have to be educated into that position. The plain reading of Scripture does not lead one to that position, in my humble opinion. Now, the followers of the famous theologian John Calvin after whom Calvinism is named, they argue that, again, foreknowledge is not an attribute but an action. And they say that God's knowledge determines the future event. But when we studied the usage of this identical word or its forms in the New Testament, we saw in all the other passages in the Word of God, it doesn't carry that meaning. And we looked at that in great detail, but let me refresh you with just a couple of those. For instance, in 1 Peter 1.20, when Peter reminds us that Christ redeemed us with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's the same word. He's simply reminding us that God knew beforehand that he would need to send the Savior. God was not in shock that day when in Adam all of humanity rebelled against God Almighty. God knew it was going to happen. And that's why the Revelation teaches that in the heart and mind of God, Jesus was crucified ever before he created the world. To put it simply, the cross of Christ was not an ambulance sent to a wreck. It was part of God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, knowing what we would need. Paul, when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, surrounded by his accusing brethren, of his Jewish brethren, he said, they have known about me for a long time. Have known about me. It's the same Greek word used in our text, prognosko prior knowledge. They've known about me for a long time. And if they are willing to testify and they were all around him and they had opportunity, they could testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Literally, the Greek reads, they knew me before. Speaking of the prior knowledge that they had of the Apostle Paul. What I'm trying to help us to see is that the word foreknow simply means prior knowledge, and it is on that basis that God elects us. If someone asks you, do you believe in the doctrine of election, you ought to shake your head and say, yes, I do. Because the Bible teaches the doctrine of sovereign election. 
God chose us. He elected us before the foundation of the world. All true Bible-believing Christians believe in the doctrine of election. That's not the point of debate. The point of debate is how does God elect? And Peter plainly says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens who are chosen. How? According to the foreknowledge, the prior knowledge of God the Father. Now, let me say, while this is a much-discussed issue in the college dorm room amongst pastors and amongst seminary students and theologians, it's not if you are going to be confronted on this issue, it's when you're going to be confronted on this issue. If this issue doesn't interest you today, I promise you there's coming a time when it will interest you. But because it's found in the Bible, even the humblest Christian can understand what God says about this from, with the Holy Spirit's help. Now, I learned a long time ago that there are many pastors and theologians who are educated beyond their own intelligence. And they have departed from what Paul calls the simplicity that is found in Jesus Christ. So that's the first link. That's by way of review. God's foreknowledge. Now, beyond God's foreknowledge, let's think this morning about God's predestination. It says here, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, understand the doctrine of predestination is different from the doctrine of election. Because predestination focuses on, focuses on the outcome of our salvation. God in his foreknowledge, in his advanced knowledge, knowing how men would respond to his prompting work to bring them to Christ, knowing that there would be some who would respond, he predetermined a particular outcome. And that outcome is to make them into the image of his son. And so those whom God foreknows, he predestines to conform them to become like Jesus Christ. That doesn't contradict free will, that coincides with free will. Now let me again emphasize, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I don't believe there's a, great, a blade of grass that wiggles in the, in the wind apart from the sovereignty of God. I believe God placed every star precisely where it is. He calls forth their host by number. He has them all numbered. And so should you believe in foreknowledge and predestination? Yes, you should. Because it's as clear in the Bible that it is taught. Again, the question becomes the definition of these words. What does it mean? Now, please understand, the term is typically used by unbelievers and some uninformed believers to say that predestination is God's determination of who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. But most Calvinists don't even use it that way. They make a distinction between election and predestination. And predestination in the Bible just means something that God determines beforehand. And when it's used in reference to the child of God, God has determined beforehand a particular outcome when it comes to our salvation. And that outcome is to make us into the image of His Son. So God in His foreknowledge, in His prior, in His advanced knowledge, knowing how men and women respond, on that basis He elected people. And those whom He elected and chose, He predetermined to reach a particular outcome. 
And when you study this word throughout the New Testament, that's the meaning of the verb. It speaks of God's sovereign purpose that is going to be accomplished no matter what. Do you remember in Acts chapter 3 on that occasion when uh, the apostles went to the golden gate, the beautiful gate? It's the eastern gate that's sealed up today. Someday Messiah is going to walk through that gate when he comes again and lands on the Mount of Olives. But they see a man, they're crippled from birth, and they do a miracle. Peter does a miracle. Silver and gold I have not, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And all of the religious leaders are bent out of shape over what they do, and they threaten their lives. After they're threatened, they gather together and they have a prayer meeting. And they recount the sovereignty of God Almighty. There's a lot of Christians in the American church who are whining and sniveling over the great apostasy that is happening across our nation morally and theologically. But may I remind you that God is still on His throne. God is sovereign. He knows what He is about. And when He looks at the foolishness that mainline denominations and politicians are making over moral issues, thinking that they are gods and they are kings, He laughs. Because he is going to accomplish his sovereign purpose in spite of that. And so there, when they gather for that prayer meeting, they quote the psalm that we read in the pastoral prayer, Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage, it says in Acts 4. Why do they rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined, identical word, predestined to occur. Now, these men were facing a very serious threat. And when they face it, they go back to the darkest day that they remember in their life, a day when their hopes and dreams and aspirations were crushed, a day when God's holy servant, the Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, had Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and uh, the Gentiles and the Roman uh, soldiers come against him and the people of Israel. But nonetheless, they remind themselves that it all happened according to God's sovereign purpose. It was predestined as it is exactly what God said would happen. Peter, when he preaches his very first spirit-filled sermon on the day of Pentecost, he uses this same word predetermined. This man, delivered up by the predetermined, same word used in Romans 8.29, same tense. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but of course God raised him up. In both situations, these early Christians acknowledged that the people who gathered against God's Christ did exactly whatever your hand predestined to occur. Before it ever happened, God planned it all. So don't ever think for a moment that the death of Christ was an accident, that it was some expression of martyrdom or ultimate commitment. It happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In the same way, in God's foreknowledge, His foreknowledge, knowing what a true believer would do, He predetermined something to happen. He predetermined an outcome. 
By the way, this is precisely what Ephesians 1 reminds us of. Just as he chose us, it's the word we get our word election from, just as he chose us in him in Christ before the foundation of the world. And why did God choose us before the foundation of the world? That, here's the reason, we should be holy and blameless before him. God saved us to shape us into the image of his son. In all of the usages of the word, predetermined, predestined, when it's used in relation to us, in pe to people, that is, it is never, ever once used in relation to lost people. In every instance, it is only used in relation to saved people. Now, God is no less sovereign, as some of my friends would tell me, God is no less sovereign in his advanced knowledge, knowing how men would respond to his initiation with them. God is no less sovereign in allowing them as an act of their own free will to choose. Some people will say that's a work. That's not a work any more than faith is a work. Faith is not a work. Faith is just the channel that receives what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. But God predetermined an outcome, and that's what our verse says here in verse 29. Look at it again. I hope you bring a Bible. I see some of you looking around. You need to be looking at your text if you're serious and you want to grow. And some of you are here for the first time and you didn't know to bring a Bible because you didn't know that I preach from the Bible because all the churches you've been to never preach from it. But you bring one, and if you don't have one, come see me. I'll give you one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. For what reason? So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, as a result of our being made into Christ's image, it's with a view towards giving Jesus Christ first place. Now, in Jewish culture, the term firstborn was usually used in reference to a son, the oldest son, unless a daughter is specifically stated. But the term spoke of a privileged status, and it can also be used figuratively of a place of special prominence as it's used here. In almost every instance in the New Testament, the word brethren is used only of believers. It's used generically, of course, of brothers and sisters in Christ. The exception to that is when Paul uses brethren or other leaders in the early church to refer to their Jewish brethren. So when God shapes you into the image of his son, he does it that he might be the firstborn, that he might have preeminence amongst the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. God is interested not in exalting you. He's not interested in exalting me. He's interested in exalting his son. And so a day is coming when Paul will say that for this reason, God highly exalted him because he gave himself and he bestowed on him the name which is above every name that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess of those who are in heaven, those who are under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So God's saving purpose is with a view towards Christ reflecting the preeminence that he deserves. And when you reflect Christ, when you are shaped and molded and become more and more like Jesus, you show off Jesus and God is glorified. Now, he moves from eternity past. We've been speaking of God's foreknowledge 
of God's advanced knowledge. And based on that advanced knowledge, we've been speaking of God's predestined purpose. Now he moves into time and space when we think of God's calling. That's the third point on the, the outline, God's calling. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Look at verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Now, in the Bible, the word called has two usages. One very, very general and one very, very specific. The verb, that is. There's the general call of God that happens whenever the good news is preached. When the gospel is preached, God knocks, so to speak, at the door of your heart. He, he's calling you to make a decision. And by the way, don't ever think that you called upon God first. God took the initiative. The Arminian is totally wrong in that he thinks man has a spark left within himself all by himself to respond to God. Impossible. We've already studied the deadness of man. And so right after man sins, God comes in the garden. He asks the question, where are you? That's not the voice of a detective. That's a voice of a loving, searching God helping Adam to see precisely where he is. Adam is hiding from God in his sin. And God asks him, where are you? Don't think that Adam was seeking God. God was seeking Adam, and the New Testament reminds us of that same truth. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. The initiative began with God. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we love him because he first loved us. Do you think it was your idea to seek the Lord, to read some book on apologetics, to come to church? It was not. It was God's idea. He put the interest in your heart, and if he had never put that interest in your heart, you never would have had that interest. The only reason you came is because he put that interest in you. But in saying that, don't think for one moment that God doesn't give all men an opportunity, because he does. That general call that goes out to the ends of the earth. The prophet Isaiah said, speaking of the Lord, turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In Ezekiel 33, 11, he says of all of humanity deemed as wicked, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. And the New Testament, Jesus again said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not an insincere invitation. It is a sincere invitation. Just as he said in John 7, now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In Revelation 22, 17, again, it's not some insincere invitation when God says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take water of life without cost to come. Now, don't ever think that man doesn't have an opportunity. To listen again to today's message entitled, God's Chain of Salvation, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy of program number ROM40. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or through our Search the Scriptures app for Apple and Android devices. 
Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we continue our look at God's chain of salvation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.